0: I thought I was made this week when my son, my youngest son, came in with a pet, Caterpillar. Uh, We don't do pets at my house. We have five kids. But he came with a pet Caterpillar, and I'm like, and he started to feed him. And the Caterpillar just took to the kale we were putting in the jar, like a fish to water, and just gobbled it up. And then started apparently... Uh, you know cocooning and I'm like this is perfect God is writing my Easter sermon for me and then the caterpillar died <laughs> without, without making a cocoon and then you know merging from the cocoon and all that so it did not go the way that I would have scripted it it did not go the way I thought it was going to go and in a sense in the passage in the text that we're looking at today that's exactly what happens for those in it uh, They thought it was going to go one way, it didn't go that way. And then even when it didn't go the way they thought it was going to go, it doesn't go the way they thought it was going to go after that either. Uh, They're constantly uh, trying to figure this out, this thing, the resurrection, this strange history. And so before we get into it, uh, I want to pray. I want to just ask God to be here with us today and uh, really guiding Our worship, because that's what we're doing in this time. This isn't an academic exercise. This is worship So we dig into his word. And so let's pray that God would be the one who's teaching us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this account that we have in Luke of the resurrection. And all the passages of scripture that have already been read and will be read that testify to the bodily resurrection, the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our great hope in the church. It is the basis for our faith. And so it's not just this Sunday, though. This is a particular Sunday in the church year in which we celebrate the resurrection. It is every day of our lives that the resurrection is the basis of our hope for the future. And we ask that you would teach us from your holy word about the resurrection of Jesus today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's not simply jump right in uh, to Luke's, at least the beginning of Luke's resurrection account. Uh, Let's think about what's preceded it. What has come before. Let's reflect on what Friday represents in the church calendar. And that is the, the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. He was crucified on a Roman cross. On, on Friday afternoon, he breathed his last breath. and he gave up his spirit. And then Luke records for us this, which is the passage that comes right before the one we're going to look at today. Here's what he records after Jesus has died. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. Now, stop for just a second. Look at me. Don't look at the screen. The council that he's talking about there is the council that pushed for Jesus' crucifixion. This guy was on that council, okay? So he was, he was part or a member of that council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, the governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, the women rested according to the commandment. So that is Friday. And then there's the discussion of Saturday, which is the Sabbath. One of the things that changes with the resurrection is what we consider the day of rest. Uh, Because Jesus was raised on a Sunday, the first day of the week, we now celebrate that as the resurrection day, the Sabbath day. We think of Sabbath, usually we think of Sunday, don't we? But no, that changed. So Friday Jesus dies, Saturday they rest because that's the, the Sabbath for the Jewish people. And now we move to Sunday morning. Here's what Luke writes there about the resurrection. Luke 24 verse 1, hear the word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles an idle tale, and they did not believe the women. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. There are two questions to ask ourselves whenever we consider this passage of Scripture or any passage of Scripture that details the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First question to ask, did it happen? Is this historically reliable and therefore worthy of our belief? And if it is historically reliable and worthy of our belief, the second question is this. What are the implications for us? What actually changes for you and for me if Jesus rose from the grave? And so we're going to pursue these two questions this morning. First, did it happen? There is so much that could be said at this point. It's almost hard to know where to start. The question's literally been debated for nearly 2,000 years. That's how important it is. It's a a, a supremely important question. That's how important it is for you and for me to consider this morning. I could start with Luke's gospel account. I could point out that Luke had a very precise and specific purpose he was pursuing when he wrote his gospel account. And when he wrote, again, after that, the book of Acts. Acts. In fact, Luke tells us he was all about writing history. Uh, Look at what he says here. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. His own words about what he's doing. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Collecting eyewitness accounts through interviews and research for the purpose of writing an orderly narrative of past events sounds like history. It sounds like the work of a historian. That's precisely what Luke imagined himself to be, thought he was doing. Most of us get up every day and we turn on our television sets or we turn on our phones and we get the news. And what is the news? The news is a reporter, a person who goes after interviews and does research and collects all that and and then Uh, organizes an orderly account so that they can share it with you and with me so that we'll know what's happened. And for the most part, what do we do with the news? Well, outside of the most skeptical conspiracy theorists among us, we believe that the things reported there actually took place. They happened. We might disagree a little bit on the perspective the reporter takes, but we believe the events occurred. And history is the same, It's also true of our history classes. We read accounts of the distant past, and we trust that Caesar crossed the Rubicon or that Abe Lincoln gave an address at Gettysburg. We believe the witnesses and the accounts that they've given us. Now, at this point, it would be fair to object that those don't tell us that someone who was dead became undead, that someone wrestled with and conquered death it would be fair to object that this is abnormal history, this account of Luke's. And you know what? Every Christian would agree with every non-Christian on that point. Uh, Easter does not celebrate normal history. There's no doubt about it. The resurrection wasn't a normal historical event. And that objection brings me to another thing that could be said in support of the historical believability of the resurrection. Namely, that there were a bunch of people who claimed to have seen it. There were a bunch of people who said they had an interaction with the risen Christ. That they saw abnormal history in the flesh. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in a passage that we read part of earlier, gives us a list of witnesses. Even witnesses who were currently alive and could be asked about this abnormal history. He says this in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, beginning in verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, just another name, by the way, for Peter. Peter got a lot of names in the Bible. Lot of names. But so first to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive. Paul says, go check out this abnormal history. You might argue, as some have argued, maybe they all conspired together in order to consolidate power in this new religious. Movement that Jesus had started. Uh, Maybe this is all a giant lie to keep people under control or under their control. But this line of thinking is flawed in two major ways. First, keeping such an elaborate secret, one kept hush hush between more than 500 people, seems extremely unlikely. I mean, I can't keep a secret between a couple people usually. Let alone 500, the lie was sure to get out among this many people. But, second, and far more devastating to the argument that the resurrection was a lie, is that many of these eyewitnesses were persecuted and even executed for their belief in Jesus' resurrection. Now, we know sadly that a lot of people will die for their beliefs, even beliefs that are, are false beliefs, that can be demonstrated to be untrue. They believe something, they truly believe something. It's false, and they're willing to die for it. But this is not that kind of thing. You see, the argument here that this is all a lie hinges on the fact that all of these people who were dying, being executed for this lie, would have known that it was a lie. People will die for what they believe to be true that's not true, but rarely ever would someone die for something that they know is not true. See, it's a completely different category of things, and it seems highly, highly unlikely. In fact, in my opinion, many ways that people try to explain away the historical resurrection border on absurdity. Perhaps 500 plus people all had a hallucination. That's a real argument that people make, a giant hallucination. They saw Jesus raised from the dead, or perhaps Jesus had fainted, swooned, but wasn't really dead when they put him in the tomb, and so he just You know, got up after he woke up and appeared to his disciples. They thought he was resurrected. That's a real argument that people make. I would just say, is it very likely for hundreds of people to have the exact same hallucination over many weeks and in various locations? Is a mostly dead, bruised and bloody, resuscitated leader who appears to his followers likely to inspire those followers to trust in his resurrection even unto death? I mean, if, if you saw a bruised and bloodied, barely alive Jesus, would you go, I want that? That's what I want to look like. That's the resurrection I want. Hardly. I'm not making these things up. These are the kinds of arguments proposed to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the end, we have to admit that whether we, we accept the resurrection, we believe in it, we trust in it, or whether we do not, hinges on our presuppositions. What we're willing to accept as possible or not possible. If miracles are off the table, the very idea of a resurrection from the dead is an impossibility for you, then you'll never accept texts like this one as historical. You, like Thomas Jefferson, will discard miracles and keep only natural elements in the Bible. There was a first century Jewish teacher named Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, we can keep that one in there. He was crucified as a criminal in Jerusalem around AD 33. Okay, we can keep that one in there. His disciples claim that he rose from the grave. Okay, yeah, I think they really believe that. We have a church still believing that today. Okay, we can keep that one in there. But you move to the miraculous, and immediately, let's cross that out. Presuppositions, when reading the text, the natural facts of the matter, please Merely the non-supernatural facts of the matter. That's what they want. But here's the trouble with this thinking. By discounting the very possibility of miracles, you've discounted the possibility of God. No miracles, no God. At least not a God that matters. If God can't work miracles, then I don't think we really have a God who exists We only have a God who's governed by his creation, really no God at all, right? Not a God who's over creation, but one who's under it, a weak, impotent God. As far as historical documents go in the ancient world, the Gospels are impeccable. They are the best kind of ancient history that we have available They put other ancient texts to shame in terms of the number of copies that exist and the accuracy of those copies' transmission and the proximity of the earliest manuscripts to the events that they report. They are impeccable historical documents from the ancient world. In fact, I think if you take the miracles out, there isn't a historian alive who wouldn't say that's the best ancient history we have. That's it right there. Take away the modern presupposition that miracles don't happen and the gospel narratives would enjoy a more serious consideration by many in our skeptical world because they presuppose that it's impossible for miracles to happen, like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So here's the question before us this morning. Are you willing to grant that if God exists, then miracles, even Jesus rising from the grave, could take place in real history? If you're not, there's nothing I could argue or anyone else could argue to make you believe otherwise. You've already discounted the idea of miracles. There is no resurrection from the grave. We're just playing games. If, however, you're willing to grant that there's a creator God who stands over this world and the laws of nature, then Jesus' resurrection isn't just possible, but perhaps, I'd argue, because of the evidence, even quite probable. Likely, I would argue, A historical fact. The most important happening in the history of the world. And it is this realization and belief that brings us to our second question. If Jesus rose from the grave, what does it change? What does it change for you? What does it change for me? The short but giant answer to that question is everything. It changes everything. Everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes people and trajectories in history and how we live right now, each and every day. It changes everything. We see this. We get a glimpse of this in today's passage, don't we? The women who go to Jesus' tomb in sorrow and grief leave with hopeful joy and excitement at the prospect of his resurrection. Resurrection. They are fearful at the beginning, but bold in their testimony to the 11 apostles in the end. They are honored by Luke in his narrative as the first disciples who believe in the resurrection. And guess what? The uh, 10, 10 of the 11 apostles are shamed. Are shamed by Luke for not believing these ladies' testimony, for dismissing the women. By the way, uh, how Luke portrays 10 of the 11 disciples in this narrative is just another example of why this account should be regarded as believable to us. These are the leaders of the early church. If you're making this stuff up, you don't make your leaders look like this. Who would make their leaders look like this? Who would make them look weak, faithless, and chauvinistic? Who makes leaders in an early religious movement look like this? No one, unless they really look like this. And they did. They did. But the resurrection of Jesus would eventually transform those ten apostles also because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. So these guys aren't going to stay like this when they believe in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. But as we close, I want us to consider Peter. Think about Peter with me for a moment. In the last few days leading up to Uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has proclaimed allegiance to Jesus even if it meant death. Yet when danger just peaked in a bit, he ran away and he hid himself. Peter told Jesus he would never deny him, but when confronted by a servant girl around a fire and a couple of other people, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, twice. But three times, Peter of the 11 remaining disciples, apostles, is the one who has promised the most yet delivered the least. When, however, the women return talking about all they've just witnessed, an empty tomb, two dazzling messengers, and the remembrance of Jesus' promises promises to them of his death and his resurrection, what does Peter do? In contrast to the other 10 apostles... Luke tells us that Peter in verse 12 rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. The apostate Peter would become Christianity's lead apostle. The denier of Jesus would become one of Christ's chief confessors, the disciple who ran from danger and in fear of death would march to his death, his sacrificial death for his faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changes Peter because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Friends, I don't know who in this fallen world dismisses you like the apostles dismiss the women in this text. I don't know who it is who marginalizes you and looks at what you say as an idle tale, thinks about you as having little value. I don't know what you face each and every day, what marginalization you face, but I know faith in the resurrection can provide you with courage to boldly face that. Christ's resurrection changes everything. I don't know what you might have done that is shameful. I don't know what you might have done that's embarrassing, like the ten apostles in this passage. I don't know the kind of prejudice you harbor. But I do know that following Jesus, our resurrected Savior, can bring redemption because his victory over death changes everything. I don't know all your failures. I don't know who you've let down or betrayed as Peter let down and betrayed Jesus in the end. But I do know Jesus' resurrection offers you forgiveness and restoration. It gives you the power to be forever transformed. It gives you the power of resurrection in your life right now. And in the future one day, you will be resurrected with Jesus. Even to the image of Christ Jesus. In other words, you're going to share in the glory of God. That's the promise of resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundational doctrine of Christianity. With it, the faith, Christianity, stands. Without it, the faith, Christianity, falls. Because it's the confirmation that what Jesus said about himself and about his mission is true. Jesus' resurrection is God's signature, certifying that in and through Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are yes to us. They are granted. The shame of sin, taken away from us through faith in Christ, yes. The power of death over us, broken through faith in Christ, yes. The chasm which separated us from the joy of eternity in God's glory. Bridged through faith in Christ. Yes. The resurrection says to all of these things. They are yours through faith in Christ Jesus. All of these things and much, much more are yours through faith in Christ Jesus. Not just into eternity, but beginning now. Do you believe this? Because if you do, it must change everything. I'll ask you now to bow your heads with me in prayer. And we'll have one final song to celebrate the resurrection. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the eyewitnesses. We thank you for the apostles. We thank you for these faithful women who ran from the tomb to to be the first to testify about the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that they're recorded for us here. And we thank you that you do not leave us to despair in a fallen world, but you are pleased to change everything about our lives through the resurrection of Christ Jesus and our faith in it. Amen.